Let's, um, let's open up our Bibles this morning to the book of James, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I think I'm actually going to stop right there. Father, your word is a, an amazing thing. It's alive. It's infused with spiritual power. An unbeliever looks at it and sees words on a page like any other book. But we know that your word is alive because you tell us that it's alive. We know that it is the sword of the Spirit, our only offensive weapon that we are granted. We know that it goes forth and it accomplishes whatever you have purposed for it to do. It cannot be defeated. It does not return to you void. And we believe that when the people of God are gathered in the house of God on the Lord's day and the man whom God has appointed stands with the book of God and speaks that if everybody's doing their job, you enter into that process and amazing things happen. So we ask, O oh Lord, to speak to your people this morning. Please, Lord, give us a word from your word. Amen. So um, we have been looking at different parts of um, spiritual transformation into Christ's likeness uh, over these last uh, weeks. We started with uh, Ash Wednesday and made this a special Lenten study. I think I'm going to do one, maybe two more, and then we'll return to our, our closer um, our closer study of the book of Ephesians and, and finish that out. But last week, I introduced you to the concept of the egotistical passions. And we said last week, if you were not here, we'll, we'll uh, tell you, and if you were here, we'll remind you that the egotistical passions are strong, disordered, self-oriented, sinful desires that arise from within us. They're a product of the fall. 
And they can arise from our bodies, or they can arise from our minds, or they can arise from our hearts. Now, I need to press pause here and just mention something that, uh, that I forgot to mention earlier. Some of you have got a, an outline and some of you don't, and the reason for that is the black toner cartridge died in the copier halfway through the job, and I can't find uh, a, a replacement. So I did what I could, and if it's important to you, I will try and find another one and have them available next week. If it's not, well, that's good to know. Okay, so then, uh, we talked about these passions that arise from within us that that uh, Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1, and James talks about here in James chapter 4, and literally the scripture is littered with talk about these passions and how destructive they are. There are a few words in Greek to describe them. The most common one is epithumia, but these are strong, sinful desires. They're, 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 they're what gives rise to specific sins. It's the force behind the sin that dwells within you. And then I described the relationship between these egotistical passions and those powerful spiritual ideas which are constantly assaulting us which I said are the fiery darts of the evil one that are described in Ephesians chapter 6, and which the Scripture calls, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 10, logismoi. Uh, the singular in Greek is logismos, so there is a logismos, there are many logismoi, and these are, these are ideas that have a spiritual power to them, and they, they enter into you, and they can cause tremendous damage, but not all of them are bad. The Scripture is actually filled with good ones, and that's how God gets His transforming information into our souls, is that these ideas have power, and they grab a hold of us, and they change how we think, and they change then what we are on the inside. And when a, 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 a bad logismos from the outside meets an egotistical passion that rises up within us, we have the perfect conditions for temptation and then for sin. And James describes this process in pretty good detail in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Listen to what he says and see if this doesn't make sense to you as it does to me. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted and when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. These egotistical passions, by his own desire. And then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And the Bible says in many places that the job of the Christian, one of your main tasks in life as a Christian, is to isolate, cut off, and kill those sinful passions with the help of the Holy Spirit. And the ideal state that we would like to get to and we can get to if we're wise and diligent, is what the early Christians called a state of apathia, without the passions. So we live without these destructive passions, and when we don't have these things rising up inside of us, well, avoiding sin becomes a whole lot easier, doesn't it? 
Because if, if, and I, I used the example uh, the other day during the spiritual formation class, and incidentally, this is the kind of stuff that we're discussing in our spiritual formation class, how to do this. And I, and I used the example of, of uh, walking into Ruley's and not having to go, I won't shoplift, I won't shoplift, I won't shoplift, because I have no passion for that, right? Now, there are some people, man, they've got sticky fingers. And they walk in, they get, uh, they get converted, they walk in, and they're like, I won't shoplift, I won't shoplift. Ooh, spinach is on sale. I wonder how much spinach I could get in my pocket, you know? And, and they, they're tempted by that because they have this passion rising from within us. It's real easy to criticize other people for their egotistical passions, isn't it? And not pay any attention to the fact that we're ruled by other ones that are just different. Well, the Bible says that we're to, to kill these things. Now, we need to think carefully and contrast that with the advice that the world gives to the worldlings about the best way to live. Because the advice the world gives to a person who wants to know who they are and what they should do is look inside of you. See what's bubbling in there. See what your strongest desires are that well up from within you and then make pursuing those desires your life's main goal because whatever the strong desires are inside of you or the egotistical passions we know, whatever is welling up from your depths, depths, those are expressions of your most authentic self and because they have no concept of the fall of man and of indwelling sin, they say, and those are by definition good, and then you should make your life about pursuing those things. And then we wonder why when we look around at the world, we see such chaos. Because everybody is pursuing their sinful passions, their egotistical passions. And of course, this is a rolling disaster for non-Christians. And, and it's interesting because there are other more traditional cultures in the world that are not Christian at all, and they plainly see what a disaster it is. This is wisdom from God that has been made available to all people by what we call general revelation. In other words, there are pagans who know more about this than we do as American evangelical Christians who haven't quite shaken off our culture. It's only in the post-Christian West that we think that this is a good idea and a good way to live. And actually, the U.S. is actively spreading these ideas to other parts of the world who haven't accepted it, and they're often tying like financial aid and things like that to the acceptance and the propagation of these ideas into the society in places like Latin America and Africa and the Middle East and Eastern Europe, which is more conservative socially, and Asia. And it's actually starting to cause a backlash against America because we're going around going what you need to do is just do whatever you feel like is inside of you and if that's horrible by your cultural standards that's just because your culture is backwards so you be brave and ruin it for us and that's what they're doing now this is not just something that popped up on the scene in the last 20 years this genie was actually let out of the bottle by the countercultural movement in the 60s and 70s and particularly the propagation of those ideas that came about as a result of the feminist revolution and the sexual revolution in the, in the late 60s. You, folks, when we actually look at, if we believe the Bible and, and we look at the world that's been created, we have to conclude that the 60s were not cool. 
I know you think they were, because all of you were there, and I bet all of you were at Woodstock and everything else, but the 60s were not cool. They were self-absorbed, they were narcissistic, they were a cultural disaster that is still reverberating and bearing bitter fruit today. Now, we said last week that there are many different ways historically to classify and to describe these egotistical passions within us. The early Christians who knew their Bibles and who thought carefully about their experience with the Holy Spirit as they pursued godliness kind of settled on a list of seven or eight categories, which would be kind of a catch-all, a way of sorting the individual problems and putting them in different categories. And last week, I introduced four of them just briefly, and we'll go back over them this week briefly. The first one is gluttony, gluttony. Gluttony is the overuse of some good gift from God to satisfy a desire for bodily indulgence. When Paul talks about the people of Crete uh, and their specific cultural problems, he quotes one of their own prophets, presumably a pagan prophet, and he says, their own prophet has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And then he says, and this is true. So he had a very high estimate of the people of Crete. And, and so in Titus, the book of Titus, Paul tells Titus, who he's sending to Crete to organize the church there, he tells Titus to, um, to rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. That's Titus 1, 12 and 13. Paul also talks about people in Philippians 3 and verse 19 whose God is their belly. And then he says, and their end is destruction. Now, it doesn't, gluttony doesn't just affect your desire for food. Gluttony is for food, it's for drink, it's for alcohol, it's for drugs. You can be a glutton of shopping. You can be a glutton for thrilling experiences. I know personally I have been a glutton for motorcycles in the past. I actually have a picture somewhere, I couldn't find it, of all the license plates of all of my motorcycles that I had in varying states of decay in my yard and my shop that I was going to rebuild one day. And I think there were at one point in time 12 of them. And, uh, and I was going to just, I had all these plans and, and I really enjoyed, you know, but I couldn't, I couldn't pass a dead motorcycle without going, mm, I bet I could take the engine out of that one and put it in that frame and then rake the forks and drop the rear end and blah, 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 blah. And I was just a glutton. I have the same problem with cars sometimes. And you can be a glutton for shoes. I mean, ladies, you've only got two feet. How many, how many, how many shoes do you need for two feet? And the answer is two shoes, all right? Maybe a spare pair for when it's raining. You name it. You don't have to want a lot of something, but what you have, if, if what you have to have is the best, like you're a snob, you're a coffee snob or you're whatever, and you're offended if somebody brings you inferior coffee, then you're a glutton. If you're a hoarder, you're a glutton. If you can't pay your bills because you overspent on unnecessary things, you're a glutton of one kind or another. Now, the second one was lust, and we specified sexual lust as opposed, for instance, to lust for power. 
And lust basically is manifest as any expression of sexuality outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage. Anything beyond that that falls under the definition of lust. And you can lust within a marriage too. To lust for another person treats them as an object for fulfilling your desires. And you can certainly do that within a marriage. But you are always doing that, says God, outside of a marriage. Because lust sees a person as a vehicle for your pleasure and sex as a transaction. The third one that we mentioned last week was greed or avarice. This is a burning desire for more, more than you need. And it can arise out of a fear of not having enough. And therefore, you think your security lies in having as much as you possibly can. But what you can discover is that you can, uh, that however much you end up having, it won't make you feel secure. Um, and so you end up always wanting just a little bit more to be a little bit more secure. And something might happen to that. So I need to save up and buy one of these to make sure that I can secure this part of my life. And what you find out is you can't make yourself secure in the world. I don't care how much money you have. I mean, you can do a good job of beating off certain obvious dangers, but there's just other ones lurking. And the only security that you'll ever have is God. And the reason why greed is such a problem is greed is basically the most credible um, competition, shall we say, in the world for trust in God. And there are many rich Christians who find themselves almost paralyzed to trust God because they've never had to because they've got enough. And then all of a sudden when they looks like they might not have enough or even just less than they think they need but don't actually need, then they panic. And so what they really want is they want God like a spare parachute. You know, you, you get in one of those little airplanes or, and, and, and they strap a, a, a spare parachute on your back in case there's trouble and, and you think, well, I hope the plane gets from A to B, but if it doesn't, I got this parachute, but I sure hope I don't need to use it. And they treat God like that. And that's not a place of blessing. That's a bad place. Greed can also arise out of competitive pride. It's not just that you have to have more. You have to have more than your neighbor, somebody that you're looking at and envying. The fourth one is acedia or sloth or laziness. This term arises from the biblical Greek word kadia, which means appropriate care and appropriate concern. And the prefix a means without. So this is a person who is without appropriate care and concern for something that they have responsibility over. This is the sluggard that we find in the book of Proverbs. And, and the Bible often spends time mocking this person, especially in the book of Proverbs. It talks about the sluggard, and he turns on his bed like a door turns on his hinges, just kind of, and he doesn't ever get up if he doesn't have to. He, he's uh, so lazy that he, he buries his hand in the, foot, in the food dish, and then he's too lazy to bring it back up to, I'm so tired, I can't, I can't bring the popcorn to my mouth. Oh, I'm just so tired. Of course, it's not from overwork that he's tired. It's from laziness. He won't take care of business. He goes around asking for handouts, for loans, and for help when he should be reaping the harvest of the work that God gave him to do. The sluggard always talks a good game, but he accomplishes very little. He's the person that won't change the oil in his car even though he knows he should. His kitchen knives are all dull. He can't find anything because he doesn't put stuff away. 
His sink is always full of dishes, his house is always a pit, and the sluggard is not in the slightest concerned about it. Things go half-finished all the time. His boss is always on the edge of firing him because he doesn't get anything done. But this person will talk incessantly about how busy he is. She's the one who can make it to every garage sale, but she's too tired to get to church half the time. The, the sluggard won't pray regularly and won't immerse herself in the scriptures, won't use her spiritual gifts at church because she's lazy. She's not taking care of her soul, not taking care of her spirit, and, and not participating. And, and the, the sluggard will always be one who complains about something, but they're not actively working and participating in what they're complaining about and they could fix. And so if you're a complainer, there's a good chance that you're also a sluggard, that you're lazy, that you're in the grip of acedia. Now the fifth one is anger or wrath. Now here we have to make a distinction. Anger is not necessarily sinful. God gets angry, the Bible says that. Jesus got angry. But anger for more than a very short time is always a sin. And even non-sinful anger is generally unnecessary. I mean, headaches aren't a sin, but do you really need one? And anger is one of the easiest things for the devil to exploit. That's why the Apostle Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, lest you give the devil an opportunity. And a lot of what goes under the name of righteous anger isn't that righteous. It's just offended pride. So, so the Bible tells us, do not nurse anger. Do not hold on to anger. Resolve whatever needs to be resolved as quickly as you can, because if you don't, you will slide into sin very quickly. And frankly, there's nothing that can be done with anger that can't be done better without anger. But when the non-sinful anger slides down that slippery slope to sinful anger, then there's hell to pay, always. Anger blinds your mind. You can't think straight when you're angry. You do the dumbest stuff when you're angry, and you are absolutely sure that it's the best thing to do. And, and you just double down on whatever your preconceived notions are. Anger darkens your heart. Your motives and your desires, they get twisted and they get corrupted and you are capable of doing tremendous harm and thinking that you're just meting out justice. In reality, you're causing tremendous damage. Anger destroys love. Anger promotes hatred and even violence. Anger causes bitterness to seep into the soul and it poisons your relationship with God and it poisons your relationship with other people. You cannot be wise and discerning and be angry. It destroys that too. Anger is also the friend of pride and the friend of hatred and it spreads to include people that you don't have any cause to be angry at. Have you ever noticed like you you get angry at your spouse and then the kids walk in and you're like, what do you want? Oh, wait, sorry. 
You know, why? Because anger spreads. And then the minute you do that to the kid, the kid's like, why are they doing that to me? Now I'm angry. And you've made it, it's like, it's like COVID, just jumping from person to person. Anger will do that. I have watched anger jump, I watched a spirit of anger jump from congregation member to congregation member in, in former churches that I've pastored. And it, it's amazing. This one couple, in all their dysfunction, they'd go talk to other people. Their marriage was falling apart. And, uh, and in their dysfunction, they go talk to other people. And, and pretty soon, you know, the husbands were co-angry with this husband and the wives were co-angry with this wife. And then they start fighting with each other about this couple's issues. That's just stupid. But people do it. And anger's like that. It just spreads like wildfire. The sixth one, despondency or self-pity. Self-pity will often settle over us after other passions have sort of had their way with us and they've produced some kind of disease of the body or the soul or the relationships. Despondency will convince the soul that the cause of all of its problems comes from the outside, from other people, from other causes, from other events. And, and it keeps the despondent person from understanding that their sickness lies primarily within, as does the cure with the help of the Holy Spirit. Because you see, a well-ordered heart under God can, with strong help, overcome almost anything. But despondency says, nah, you shouldn't have to work this hard. This is unfair. Just give up. It's not your fault. Nobody can expect you to do much because of all of your trials and troubles and setbacks. You are a victim. So go ahead and play the victim. Just milk it. And you become what I call a pity suck. You, you're walking around. You know those fish? Have you seen those fish with the sucker mouths and they like attach to the sharks, you know? And, 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 and so the, you see the sharks swim by and there's this fish attached to it. That, that's what you become. You become a, a pity suck and you start attaching yourself to other people as, as a supply of pity to make you feel better. And when you suck them dry, you swim off and look for another person to suck dry. And, and that, this keeps you in a state of just spiritual infancy. And when you do that, all these other passions come rushing in with a renewed force because I'm not responsible for me. I might as well just lay down and not worry about life and just be a victim. And then all of a sudden, gluttony comes in and sloth and greed and anger and lust. I mean, hey, if you're a victim of your wife's bad character and bad behavior, why not become a drunken, fat, unemployed porn addict, right? It's your right. You deserve it. That's all you can expect of yourself. And self-pity says, yeah, stay that way. That's a good way to be. Despondency is also close friends with pride. And suicide will often happen when despondency meets pride. And you say to yourself, They'll see how badly they've treated me. They'll be sorry after I've killed myself. They'll miss me and realize how bad I had it. And then everybody will feel sorry for me. The seventh one, vainglory. The, the Greek word in the scriptures is kenodoxia. Literally means empty glory. We find it in Philippians 2.3. We find it in Galatians 5.26. And we find it in 1 John 2.16. This is the desire for worldly recognition. 
the desire for worldly praise. This is that insatiable itch for human glory from whatever human source is important to you. Now, early on as a preacher, I realized, well, I could say I realized, I'm, I can't take the credit for it. God showed me that I could either preach for God or I could preach in order to hear people say, that was a good sermon, Pastor. I, I really liked it as they were walking out the door. But I could not do both. I could not be animated. I could be animated by one or the other, but I could not be animated by both. Because sooner or later, what God wants said will contradict what people like to hear. And if vainglory is my chief motivator, what God wants said will go right out the window. And it's very, very hard to build a big, successful church without a huge dose of vainglory in the leadership of the church. And vainglory is very cunning. It's very slippery. It's very hard to detect. It's very hard to root out. It can take many subtle forms. But here's an easy diagnostic tool for you. If you find yourself regularly doing things for someone that you probably shouldn't do because they're really not your responsibility and you don't particularly want to do them, then vainglory is one of your controlling passions because you're working to please a person who's probably never going to be pleased anyway. They're never going to thank you enough, I promise. They're never going to be at rest. They've gotten used to exploiting you and they're going to keep exploiting you as long as it serves their purpose. And as long as you want their approval more than anything else, you will find yourself continuing to be exploited. And you are succumbing to the sin of vainglory. Because all you want to hear is, I'm happy with you. You're a worthy person. Thank you so much for for doing what I wanted you to do. If you find yourself getting chapped and angry and bitter and despondent because nobody has given you what you think is appropriate praise and recognition for all of your efforts, then you are animated by vainglory. If you are an approval suck and a people pleaser, then you suffer at the hands of the passion of vainglory. Now lastly, and most seriously, is the sin of pride, is the the inward lust for pride. Pride and vainglory are cousins, but they are different. And I am indebted to a a German philosopher, a 19th century German philosopher named Arthur Schopenhauer for making this distinction clear to me. Vainglory strives for an indirect stroking of my ego by using other people which is, of course, a position of weakness because it requires the cooperation of other people who may or may not sufficiently cooperate to get you what you're aiming at. And so it puts other people in the driver's seat of your life, and they can control you. And so all of your relationships look like this. Will you please tell me how amazing I am? What do I have to do for you to tell me how amazing I am? Because I really, really need for you to do that for me in order to feel good. But pride says, I don't need you telling me a darn thing about myself or about how you think you see me because you're probably too stupid to make an accurate judgment anyway. But just so you know, I am actually technically amazing. That's pride. 
That's the difference between pride and vainglory. If you've got two artists that put their work on display for the public, the vainglorious one will say, how do you like it? The proud and arrogant artist will say, of course you don't like it. You Philistine, you can't possibly understand or appreciate my work. My art is far more cultured and, and, and is for, for people that are far more educated than you. See, pride is self-sufficient, or maybe a better way of saying it is that pride is self-sustaining, and it's contained within the person, which is actually a much more serious condition, because it's hard to correct pride by putting a person in humbling circumstances, because the, the shell that they've encased themselves in is just too hard. Pride is self-love along with a total absence of love for God and for other people. And pride is very subtle sometimes, at least to us. We, we will often not know. Pride is like bad breath, right? You think about it. If you've got bad breath, whose nose is closest to your stinky mouth? Yours, right? And you can't smell it, but everybody else around you gets that cloud of garlic or whatever, and they're like, ooh, you know. You can't smell it. Well, pride's like that. And, and so you will not see pride in yourself sometimes, but other people will see it in you very quick, quickly, and other people always dislike pride when we see it in other people. But very few of us see it in ourselves. Pride is the most dangerous passion of all. When we talk about death to self, what we are fundamentally talking about is the first stroke of the sword of the Spirit in the process of executing pride and eradicating it from our lives. Before we begin that process, our lives are dominated by an idolatry to self. In writing about this, Dallas Willard says this, thus self-idolatry rearranges the entire spiritual and moral landscape. It sees the whole universe with different eyes. The fundamental pride of putting oneself at the center of the universe is the hinge upon which the entire world of the ruined self turns. Pride is defined by desire, not love. It is above all the presumption that my desires should be fulfilled and that it is an injustice, a crying shame, and an injury if they are not. The, the modern writer that's probably written most extensively on these things and written well about them is, is C.S. Lewis. And in Mere Christianity, Lewis devotes a whole chapter to the sin of pride. It is well worth reading. It'll take you about 15, maybe 20 minutes on a Sunday afternoon. But listen to just a little bit of what he says. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. You may remember when I was talking about sexual morality that I warned you that the center of Christian morals does not lie there. Well, now we have come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride, unchastity, Anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. 
We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing for them to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. The other less bad vices come from the devil working on us through our animal nature, but this does not come to our animal nature at all. It comes directly from hell. It is purely spiritual. Consequently, it is far more subtle and deadly. For the same reason, pride can often be used to beat down the simpler vices. Teachers, in fact, often appeal to a boy's pride, or as they call it, his self-respect, to make him behave decently. Many a man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think that they are beneath his dignity, that is, by pride. And the devil laughs. He is perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting up in you the dictatorship of pride just as he would be quite content to see your chillblains cured if he was allowed in return to give you cancer. For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. In God, you come upon something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore you know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. St. Augustine saw long ago that pride is the opposite of love, and that love eliminates pride. Love eliminates pride because love is primarily a will for the good of another person. If I love you, I want what's best for you. Truly loving another person nullifies all of our egotistical and all of our arrogant presumption that we should get our own way. Instead, we're concerned for the good of others, and we're assured that our good is taken care of by God, and we don't need to exert ourselves and control the situation to have ourselves taken care of. Now, pride is the master egotistical passion. It's the passion behind all the other passions, and you could effectively kill all the other passions. You could get rid of gluttony and greed and acedia and everything else. You could kill all of those things in you, but if you leave pride in place, all of those other ones will come roaring back. But if you kill pride, you can more easily and effectively terminate those other passions. And so the smart move is to go after pride first. Now you may be asking yourself, is it really possible is it really possible to kill and eradicate these things that I've been living with my whole life, greed and lust and laziness and pride and all the others? Let me assure you that it is. Let me assure you on the authority of the Word of God that it is. The Bible clearly teaches this. And Bible-believing Christians throughout history, right up until about the 1960s, clearly understood this. 
in classical Reformed theology, this is called the mortification of the flesh or the mortification of sin. And I'll tell you something else. Not only is it possible for you to eliminate these things in your life and to go after them and to have effective success, it is actually necessary to inherit eternal life. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. He says this, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You live according to the flesh. If you're controlled by these egotistical passions, if you don't get rid of them and get rid of their control in your life, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then Paul says again in Galatians chapter 5, in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the wall. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, there's lust. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, there's anger and pride, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You won't go to heaven with those things lodged inside of you and controlling large parts of your life. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another envying one another. Listen to Dallas Willard again. Belonging to Christ does not immediately eliminate bad feelings, and we must not be drawn into the pretense that it does, but it does crucify them. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, we read, have crucified, past tense, the flesh with its passions and desires, Galatians 5.24. Belonging to Christ does mean that the merely fleshly passions and desires are on the way to death and have already ceased leading a life of their own, much less than leading our whole life as they used to. That is how it is with all the negative and destructive feelings and those who have put Christ on the throne of their life and have taken their place on his cross. Now, there are two main modes of battle against the egotistical passions. One is to fight them directly with the help of the Spirit. It's to, to just make no room for them in your life. 
with the help of the Holy Spirit, to, to, to reject them and to rebuke them the, the minute you recognize their presence and to repent before God of them. And often spiritual disciplines like fasting or silence or solitude or intentional frugality and simplicity can help us in mortifying our passions. Last night, I, I, I had some things I wanted to get done before the, uh, before the rain hit. And, uh, and, and I had mowed my lawn uh, the day before, and, and really it wasn't like mowing the lawn, it was like out in South Dakota when we'd make hay. I mean, it was just like, you know, just gotten way too high, and I cut it all down, and there's so much grass lying on the ground, on the, on the lawn, that I was afraid it was gonna choke, you know, it was gonna kill spots. And, and so I wanted to let it lay and dry out a little bit so that it was easier to deal with, and then I was gonna suck it all up. But I also wanted to get my potatoes planted, and I dug out my potato beds, and I dug them down about a foot, and planted my potatoes, and put the soil and some straw on, and started that, and by then it was like eight o'clock. And I was like, oh, it's quitting time. And then I remembered that I had to preach to you this morning about all these deadly sins and how I struggle with acedia or laziness. And I said, if I leave that grass laying there and it starts raining on it, it's going to kill half the lawn. So I climbed on my little lawn tractor and I went out there and sucked all that grass up and I didn't quit working until almost nine o'clock. And I did that. I mortified that sin. I just said, there's just no room for this in my life. I don't want to be this way anymore. So I climbed on that tractor and I mowed until dark and got all that stuff sucked up. And now my lawn is perfect except for all the dandelions. But, but, the, but you, just, you just say to yourself, this is what I'm struggling with. This, I want to go, go sit down and play with my phone and drink a glass of tea and maybe watch some TV. No. There's stuff that needs to be done. If it didn't need to be done, you, maybe you could make an argument for, for letting things go a little bit. But it was just going to kill the grass. And I said, no, I can't do that. And that's how it works. You just, you just, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have the ability to see what's going on, to name it for what it is, to look at it and say, that has borne bitter fruit in my life, and I am going, with the help of God, to correct this now. And you do it. And you know what? It didn't hurt a bit. I enjoyed driving my little tractor around the yard. It didn't hurt a bit. And I didn't spend any extra time on my phone that I didn't need to. That's another thing I'm trying to get rid of. I've got phone gluttony, too, on top of everything else. You just, you could, you just, make, you just do battle with this stuff. But there's a, a longer-term strategy that you also need to be putting in place while you're doing your frontal assault, and that's simply to replace these passions. The nature abhors a vacuum, and spiritual nature is that way too. And so you replace these passions then, these egotistical passions, with Godward feelings. And what is to be welling up from within your depths under God is things like love, joy, peace, the, the quiet confidence in God, both for our present situation and for our future, which the Bible calls faith and hope. And when the desires welling up from within your being are love and joy and peace and faith and hope, there just is no room for the egotistical passions to come and reroute themselves in your life. Now, they will try, and you need to beat them off, and you need to be diligent, and we go back to what you need to do with your mind, it needs to be still and you need to be watchful. Hezekiah 
and nepsis are those Greek words. But, but, but you, you, you can do this. You just have to exert yourself with the help of God. And if you process to this, uh, progress rather to this stage of growth, you will find that your life becomes one of easy, routine obedience to God. That your life more or less is oriented around God and that the things that come out of you naturally most of the time are just good and pleasing to God and what he would want you to do. Now, I'm not saying you'll be sinless on this side of eternity. We do not believe in, in sinless per perfection on this side of eternity. And the only way that people that believe in sinless perfection can accomplish it is by defining per, uh, perfection downward. Uh, Wesley was famous for that. But you will not be sinless on this side of eternity. But sin will no longer rule your life in an unrecognized way. You will be substantially free from its influence and from its power. As you walk through this world with Jesus, you will find that you are in an easy yoke, carrying a light burden, and you have rest for your soul. You see, the, the spiritual life, once you get the hang of it, is not hard. What you're trying to do instead, that's hard. Trying to manage everybody else by being angry at them, that's hard. Trying to make things happen that aren't maybe ever going to happen, and being dependent on that happening in order to be okay, that's hard. Walking with Jesus, that's easy. You just do what he says and he'll give you the power to do it. Now, this is a goal in the Christian life, to become truly, lovingly, joyfully holy. Not that kind of holy that's like what we used to call sanctified by vinegar. You know those holy people that are like, that's thin, you know, those kind of people. You don't want to do that. You don't need to worry about that. You let other people worry about themselves. You pray for them if you're concerned. You just take care, you stay in your own lane, take care of your own problems. You'll have plenty to do, I promise. All right? But if you, it, it, that is a goal, to become lovingly, joyfully holy. But it's also a prerequisite for something greater. You see, there's more. And holiness is, a, is sort of a platform from which the more comes. And the more is amazing. The more is the stuff that you've been really longing for your whole life. You won't get it until you're holy in this world. But the more, whoo, it's awesome. And if God spares us, we'll explore that a little bit next week. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer. And if anything I have said this morning is untrue, unhelpful, not good, cause it to be forgotten. But if it's true and good and right and helpful, drive it home. By the power of your spirit, drive it home as only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.